You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, March 28, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with educator, author, and rights of nature attorney Thomas Lindsay in part four of an ongoing series on the local news. More in today's feature report. Also, coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, your daily headlines. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on March 23rd, Health Department Director Penny Caudill gave an update on Monroe County's COVID-19 status. She said that Monroe County is in the blue advisory category. Our two-score metric and our advisory level both remain in blue this week on that Indiana Department of Health map. And we have been told, I think I mentioned this earlier, that that map would go away. And we have been told this is the last week we will see it. The nice thing about it, it is almost all blue. So there are a few counties that are yellow and just barely um, outside of that that blue. So that is good news for the state. Our CDC community level does remain low, and Indiana only has three counties that are at a medium level at this time, and they too are very close to meeting that low level. The recommendations for areas with a low community level are simply to stay up to date on your vaccines and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any symptoms. If you are in that medium level, those two things remain the same. And then we simply add that if you are at high risk for severe illness, that you talk with your healthcare provider to determine if you need to wear a mask when you're in public around others, or if you need to take other precautions. Masks are still currently required on public transportation per federal order and businesses may still require them. So stay tuned when you're out and about, I would keep that mask handy just in case you need it. COVID-19 is circulating, although still remaining at lower levels. We expect to see some increase in cases after the breaks that we've had, some events that may be occurring, uh, but we're not at this time expecting any big surges. In terms of BA2 variant, it is circulating. New accounts for the estimation uh, are that across the nation, we are at about 35% are the BA2 variant. Uh, While it is more transmissible, we are not seeing um, a lot more hospitalizations, severe illness or deaths at this time. So that's good news. And the vaccine does remain a good tool for all of the variants that are circulating at this time. Our hospitalizations continue to drop. And so the numbers and the data is uh, 
supporting that we are at a low community level. And while the virus is still cir circulating, excuse me, we're not out of the woods as far as that goes. It is still good news. Caudill also shared that the gravity testing site will be closed during the month of April. The gravity site off Curry Pike is still open through April 1st. And I mentioned before that all of those gravity sites will be closing during the month of April. I would encourage anyone who has traveled for spring break, anyone who is concerned that they may have been a close contact, uh, somebody certainly with symptoms should take advantage of testing that is available. And the gravity site is free. It's a PCR test. It is not a rapid antigen test. Next, Assistant Chief Probation Officer Troy Hatfield asked the commissioners to approve a grant the probation department and Indiana University received to fund research strategies to decrease the chances of a client breaking parole and, in turn, reducing the amount of time someone will spend in prison. So since 2019, we've been involved with this project um, through IU Bloomington, IUPY, uh, George Mason, with some researchers from those institutions, including uh, George Mason. And what it is, is um, the first phase of the project, we, uh, this, the research group received a grant um, from Arnold Ventures Foundation uh, to really kind of look at and examine the pathways that some of our clients take, our adult probation clients take, that might lead them on the path towards having a revoked sentence where they might have to, you know, probation wasn't successful and they might have had to then uh, spend time in jail or prison uh, as a result. So that first phase basically looked, what are some of those common pathways that people follow that have that sort of outcome? Um, now that we've kind of moved through that first phase and we've learned a lot about uh, whether it's characteristics or some of the issues that uh, come up during supervision, um, we're moving into phase two. And we are one of just five jurisdictions out of the original 10 um, that are funded for phase two so that we can put together some strategies that will hopefully disrupt some of those pathways and create greater success for the clients that we have under supervision. So there are fewer days in jail and uh, fewer people uh, as a result uh, also going into prison. The probation department is receiving $170,000 in total grant funding provided by Arnold Ventures. Hatfield said that the grant completely funds the program. That would allow us to accept $170,000 in funding from that um, project to put forth towards training our staff um, into some new strategies that we can put in place to help uh, bring our clients a uh, little bit greater success during their supervision. Um, you know, just to kind of give a little bit more on this project, uh, overall, there were 10 jurisdictions funded for phase one. And we're pretty small jurisdiction for some of the people that were funded. We're talking about like Cook County, Chicago. Uh, you know, Chicago, Illinois, Harris County, Houston, Texas, Denver, Colorado, uh, and then, you know, just little all us in Monroe County, Indiana, in the Midwest. Um, and just out of those 10, we're just five that were selected to move forward with the, the phase two strategies. So, you know, I'm really proud of the project and what we're doing, what we're trying to do for our clients to bring, bring about some greater success. Uh, and we're very hopeful that the commissioners will uh, support us uh, in these efforts as well. The commissioners approve the grant unanimously. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on March 30th. On March 24th, at the Bloomington Board of Zoning Appeals meeting, Development Services Manager Jackie Scanlon 
shared a petitioner's request for a variance from tree preservation standards. Our first petition tonight, V-0522, is a request uh, for a variance from tree preservation standards. Um, the property is located at 4500 East 3rd Street. Uh, um, some of you have seen this in different um, for different petition requests. Uh, it is located um, at 3rd and 446. You can see it outlined here in red. Um, the petitioner received major site plan approval um, uh, under SP 1821, and they are planning to do a 176-unit multifamily development. They were also showing self-storage on the back of the property uh, when they originally went to plan commission. They are planning to potentially phase that and not build that with phase one. That will change slightly some of their landscaping requirements, but other than that, it's fine for them to do that. Um, when the site plan went through plan commission, they were showing a connection from 3rd Street through the property to 446, uh, out onto uh, 446 exiting on the um, east side of the property. Scanlon said that the property has approximately 45,000 square feet of tree canopy, which is required under the Urban Development Ordinance, or UDO. There is approximately uh, 44,000 square feet of tree canopy, which is a little bit less than 10% of the property total. And the UDO requires that 90% of those existing trees be preserved, um, which only allows for uh, about 4,400 square feet of disturbance allowed. The petitioner worked with Bloomington Transit to add bus stops throughout the site, which Scanlon said would be beneficial to the city. However, in doing so, they would need to remove more trees than the current code would allow. Scanlon said that the petitioner proposed a two-to-one mitigation plan to offset the tree removal. Uh, they have proposed, uh, submitted a proposal um, of a two-to-one mitigation plan um, to offset the requested variance to plant an additional 11,432 square foot area of trees on the site. So basically what we have seen uh, work well in the past is that if tree preservation areas uh, need to be disturbed, uh, that um, if, if there is extra room on the site, and obviously the site is quite large, slightly over 10.5 acres, uh, then a, a mitigation plan can be submitted and reviewed by the department uh, to help um, uh, bring about uh, those missing trees, uh, double the amount, and other locations on the site. Scanlon says that the department recommends approving the tree preservation variance. The board approved the request unanimously. The next Board of Zoning Appeals meeting will be held on April 21st. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
New York has the highest number of wrongful convictions in the nation. Currently, the law makes it impossible for innocent people who pleaded guilty and are without the benefit of DNA evidence to challenge their convictions in court. This situation prevents countless people with credible innocence claims from obtaining relief in court. In addition, law enforcement is legally allowed to lie in interrogation about the presence of evidence. This enables coerced and false confessions. This practice has devastating consequences, accounting for 43 innocent New Yorkers who have been exonerated after falsely confessing to serious crimes. 80% of those exonerated are people of color. Several new bills would rectify the situation. S324A and A6570 would end the use of deception in interrogations and help prevent wrongful convictions. A98 and S266, the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act, would repair the law to enable an authentic legal pathway to exoneration. The bill would allow people without the benefit of DNA evidence in their cases to return to court to prove their innocence. It would also provide a right to post-conviction discovery. Further, it would establish a right to counsel for those with wrongful conviction claims. Another bill, the Youth Right to Remain Silent Bill, would require children to be provided with legal counsel before they are permitted to waive their constitutional right to remain silent. By requiring that a youth consult with an attorney before waiving that right, the bill would ensure that all youth, not just those who can afford a private attorney, would have the true benefit of their constitutional right. In Louisiana, many inmates are trapped in lifelong prison sentences after being promised a chance at release at 10 years and 6 months of good behavior. After the Supreme Court temporarily halted the death penalty in 1973, the state made life sentences more punitive, first by requiring murder convictions to carry a 20-year minimum in prison, and later 40 years, and by 1979, then completely removing parole for those serving life. These are clear broken promises, states Jason Williams, the Orleans Parish District Attorney. Since last year, several of the 18 10-6 lifers have been released from prison after Williams petitioned the courts to re-sentence them to time served. And now, Senator Regina Barrow and Senator Franklin Foyle have introduced the two bills that would allow the 45 10-6 lifers across the state eligible for parole. Barrow's bill would provide immediate parole eligibility to anyone facing a life sentence for a crime committed before July 2, 1973. Foyle's bill would provide parole eligibility only to those 10-6 lifers who pled guilty. Andrew Hundley, the executive director of the Louisiana Parole Project, explained, These bills affect the men who have been incarcerated longer than anyone else in Louisiana. They are in their 70s and 80s and have served 50 or more years. What's the value to public safety for their continued incarceration? In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Thomas Lindsay senior legal counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. The conversation begins with our host asking our guest whether any rights of nature cases will make their way to the Supreme Court. This is part four of an ongoing series on the WFHB 
local news. Joining us today is environmentalist and attorney Thomas Lindsay, Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, an organization committed to advancing the legal rights of nature and environmental rights. He is also co-founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the contemporary community rights and rights of nature movement, which have resulted in the adoption of several hundred laws across the United States and around the world. He is on the board of advisors of the New Earth Foundation. He is cum laude graduate of Widener Law School and has thrice received their Public Interest Law Award. He is licensed to practice in Pennsylvania and is a recipient of the Pennsylvania Farmer Union's Golden Triangle Legislative Award. He is admitted to practice in the United States Supreme Court, the third, fourth, eighth, and 10th Circuit Courts of Appeals and the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. And he currently resides in Spokane, Washington. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Mother Jones, and The Nation. And he was named in 2007 as one of Forbes Magazine's top 10 revolutionaries. And in 2018, he was named one of the top 400 environmentalists in the last 200 years in the American Environmental Leaders Encyclopedia. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. Yeah, good to be with you, Zero. And so is there a timeline of some of these cases ultimately uh, approaching the Supreme Court? Yeah, that's a probably protracted, well, it may not be protracted. If the In the Ojibwe case, well, in all three, let's talk about those prospects. In Florida, uh, the case wouldn't make it to the U.S. Supreme Court because there's no federal claim that the Supreme Court could hear. It's all based in the county charter for Orange County. And so therefore the federal courts wouldn't have jurisdiction over it. So, but there's a chance it might go up to the Florida Supreme Court if the lower courts dismiss the claim, uh, holding that you can't bring a rights of nature claim, that would go up to the Florida Supreme Court. The tribal court cases are different. Both of those could end up in the US Supreme Court. And in fact, could end up there fairly quickly if in the Chippewa case, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals renders a ruling that the tribal court doesn't have jurisdiction over the Monoman or wild rice case, that could be appealed directly then to the U.S. Supreme Court asking them to take the case, which in essence would ask the Supreme Court to uh, kind of define what jurisdiction tribes have over rights of nature claims and treaty claims as well. So that one is probably could be on the fast track. If the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals decides to let the tribal court move forward with the claims, could be a long time before that goes back up in a position for the U.S. Supreme Court. The Soxhawatl case is kind of in the same position, but is trailing the Ojibwe case. If the uh, federal district court decides uh, to uh, uh, strip the tribal court of jurisdiction, could go up to the Circuit Court of Appeals and then up to the U.S. Supreme Court as well. But probably about a year or two on that fast track and probably four or five years on the slower track. Yeah, I mean, what a lot of this comes down to is like you said, the clean water idea in Florida. I mean, it comes down to really everyone's rights to health. Is, is there any right to a continued access to a healthful way of living at this point? Radioactive materials, heavy metals, forever chemicals are coursing pretty much through everyone's bloodstream. They're found at the top of the Himalayan mountains. 
they're in the breast milk of mothers and uh you know causation on is this exactly what caused your cancer has always been the hurdle kind of like intent is another way you can kind of never really prove intent is there any tethering of that concern into these cases yeah, I think that concern has made its way into the text of the laws themselves. Some some of the laws use precautionary principle concepts to say that you don't need to prove causation, that it's enough to show a certain environment existed uh, to head off that danger. So that's part of the precautionary principle stuff is that we don't have to, we shouldn't have to wait until the harm actually happens. We should be able to start the, stop the harm before it occurs. But the situation is dire. I mean, it's, People think, well, isn't rights of nature a radical concept to which we respond, well, isn't the state of the affairs right now pretty radical itself? You mentioned uh, the, the industrial chemicals that we find in our body. You know, 80 people don't understand also that 80,000 industrial chemicals are in use in the United States today. And, uh, you know, 700 are now found with every, within every human body. So 700 of those industrial chemicals, which you or I never gave permission uh, to actually have within our bodies. So there's a chemical trespass kind of thing happening there as well. But that we've been completely polluted uh, and poisoned by this environment that we we are in. And you know, it's not just chemicals, you know, half of all plant and animal species are now extinct, have been driven to extinction. 90% of original forests have been timbered in the US. Only 40% of waterways meet the minimum clean water standards in the US, that fishable and swimmable standard that's found within the Clean Water Act. Uh, only 40% meet that standard. So the, the real question is, what are we doing? I mean, you know, we're just moving stuff around into different media. You know, it's like how we treat uh, sewage sludge, for example. I won't get into the details, but it's basically about shifting it into the, shifting the pollutants into the air, the heavy metals into the air, shifting them into the water, and basically just dispersing them. It's not about stopping them at the source uh, or fixing the situation that we find ourselves in now. And, all this doesn't even you know, talk about climate change, which is the elephant in the room, which is that we seem to be you know, on track to fry this planet and ourselves with it. And nobody really is taking any meaningful action to stop that. And the international stuff around climate change has really been about negotiating with richer countries and the industries that, are, uh, that find themselves in those richer countries that use them against the smaller countries, which are now feeling the impact of climate change. So I'm, I'm not sure what we're doing at, in these traditional conventional venues to deal with the crisis that uh, is on us. It's not emerging, it's not down the road, it's here, it's now. And so, you know, global warming is one thing, global uh, poisoning is, is a whole nother because that's in essence what we've done to the planet and what we continue to do to it. So the question is what, Efforts are ours are going to be commensurate with that huge problem that we face with an understanding that 80% of the public has no idea that it either has no idea that it's happening or couldn't care less that it's happening because it's not directly physically impacting them at this moment. And so that becomes the question is what are we going to do with our time on this planet uh, to actually put solutions together that are commensurate to the problems that we face because it seems that the folks that we've hired to take care of those problems uh, have uh, failed miserably and are continuing to fail. And uh, what are some of the other cases that have been going on in other countries? I think I've uh, seen some stuff about a river in New Zealand, even the river, river Ganges in India. Can you tell us uh, some about some of those victories or ongoing uh, struggles? 
Yeah, so this, since the Ecuadorians uh, adopted rights of nature into their national constitution, there's been a bunch of enforcement cases, one around shrimp farming, uh, one about shark fins. Uh, people may not know this, but there's a big industry around catching sharks, taking their fins, putting the dead bodies back in the ocean, and then using shark fins uh, for shipment to Japan, other Asian countries that tend to prize shark fins as part of dishes and, and medicinals and other things. Uh, but rights of nature have been used in a bunch of cases in Ecuador, most recently with that forest reserve case uh, that uh, nullified certain mining permits within that forest reserve. The Ecuadorian Constitutional Court, which is the highest court in the land dealing with constitutional issues, has a couple other cases now pending. So we expect those to be released over the next six months, six to eight months or so. The Ecuadorian experience has really informed these other places. So in India, as you mentioned, the, the Ganges River has been recognized as having certain rights. Uh, that was the decision of a lower court in India, uh, which has since been reversed, uh, but the concept is still there. Uh, so the Ganges River, uh, also the Yamuna River in India was recognized as having rights in Colombia. Uh, the Atrato River, Colombian Constitutional Court in 2016 recognized the Atrato River as having rights. The Colombian Supreme Court uh, has recognized the Amazon and the Amazon River Basin as having rights. Uh, courts in Bangladesh, the High Court, the Supreme Court of Bangladesh, High Court of Bangladesh has ruled that all rivers in the country have rights. In New Zealand, you have this interesting kind of overlap with indigenous management of a forest and a river, the Wanganui, uh, where the Crown uh, government uh, has returned management control back to the to the Maori in New Zealand to actually manage the ecosystem, recognizing that the ecosystem is a person with certain rights. So it's almost indigenous co-management wrapped up with the rights of nature concepts uh, into that, into what's happening in New Zealand. Uh, but it's very exciting. Ireland, uh, recently several local governments passed rights of nature resolutions, which they're now turning into some kind of binding law dealing with rights of nature. Panama, just a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, passed a national law, national rights of nature law uh, in that country. So that's very exciting. And then localities continue in Brazil uh, and other countries to pass local rights of nature laws. But I, I think what we're seeing is this kind of blending of new jurisprudence with lawmaking that eventually is going to produce, you know, a new standard, uh, keeping in mind that these courts in Colombia and Bangladesh and India, they're not ruling on written laws in front of them. They're actually borrowing concepts from other countries and other courts and bringing them in and then declaring that nature has certain rights. So this isn't all about written textual laws you know, that have been passed by legislatures. There's also about judicial activism where judges are actively taking these concepts and wrapping them into existing cases. I find that very exciting because legislative change can take a while. It can take a while to draft something, get it through the process, adopt it, and then enforce it, uh, especially in places like Panama where it can be, you know, a year until you can actually file an enforcement case because that's just the way things operate there. But I think, again, the concept itself is becoming the new emerging uh, international and national jurisprudence around rights of nature issues. Uh, and I think that's going to eventually replace this concept of, of traditional environmental law that we have. And also to note you know, that 20 years ago, when we were talking about rights of nature, you know, people wanted to put us in a padded room. 
uh, because it was a crazy concept, nature having rights. Uh, but today, you know, three law schools have held uh, law school symposia on a rights of nature. And the Democratic Party of Florida has placed rights of nature, support for rights of nature laws into their state platform uh, for Florida. And the Democratic National Committee, I know this is really hard to believe, but the DNC uh, back in uh, 2016 put a plank into their national platform dealing with support for indigenous communities passing rights of nature provisions. And along with that attention, kind of moving from the fringe to at least closer to mainstream thought, uh, is that state governments, unfortunately, have also responded. So in Ohio, as a result of the Lake Erie Bill of Rights passing in the city of Toledo, Ohio used a budget bill to preempt any other municipality in Ohio from passing a rights of nature law. So again, we may not understand the effectiveness of it, but the state legislatures are beginning to. Ohio was the first, Florida was the second. Governor DeSantis has now signed into law a provision that bans cities, towns, counties from adopting rights of nature laws. So the question is, how effective are these to actually force state legislatures to try to stop us from using them at the local level? And I think they're an, an indicator that these are very effective and that the other side understands that they're a danger to continuing to be able to use nature as an externality, continue to pollute, continue to use nature as property or as they see fit. And so I think it's a very interesting time to be involved in this work because of that, that tension between the state and local, basically as a rights of nature slash democracy, pro-democracy approach to having a community be able to protect its own, its own ecosystems and its own natural systems. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. <laughs> 